Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm Jem Daduchu. And what we do here is we condense history. How do we condense it? We pick a topic, but rather than picking something like the Napoleonic Wars or the Corn Reform Laws or things like that, we pick a piece of pop culture. Let's start with something you probably know something about and show you how either deliberately or accidentally or subconsciously there's real history lurking just underneath the surface. So what am I doing this time round? I'm doing Scooby-Doo. What? Shaggy? That's my impression done. Which means, of course, we're going to be talking about events that predate civilization. We're going to be talking about the earliest form of genetic manipulation created by humans. And we're also going to be talking about censorship concerns in the 20th century. That's a lot of different things we're going to be talking about, and more on something as silly as Scooby-Doo. Uh, I had so much fun doing this one because it just came to me in the middle of the in, in in the middle of the day one day, and it's like, oh man, I think I could I can tie these two together. So behind the scenes, I've had ridiculous fun trying to sort of like pull these together. I'm also going to be talking about the Victoria Cross, or Medal of Honor if you're American, for animals. So, yeah, we're starting with Scoob, and I'm going to sort of spin you out into all these different wonderful directions. If you're a first-time listener, please, please do click subscribe, do give us a review, that'd be lovely. And to everybody out there, please spread the word. I'm at Jem Daduchu on Twitter, I'd love to hear from you, but also I regularly tweet out links to these particular episodes. If you, it'd be great if you guys could retweet those or just tell somebody about it. If each one of our listeners told one other person that there's this fun little podcast you might want to check out, we'd be able to grow a lot faster. So really appreciate all your help and support. That's the plugs done. Okay, everybody. What instead I'm going to start off with is let's look at Scooby-Doo and the the place where it's been created. Give it to him, Scoob! So Scooby-Doo was created in 1969, which probably doesn't surprise you because I am assuming everybody listening to this has watched at some point in their life Scooby-Doo. And particularly Scooby's owner, question mark? Bit weird to sort of think of it that way, but Shaggy is clearly a kind of hippie type. Like ever heard of Scotland the Brave? Well, meet Shaggy the Chicken. Yeah. 
he would not have been invented in the 1950s, and he probably wouldn't have been invented in the 1980s. So he is pretty much representative of the counterculture, an acceptable kids version of the counterculture that is still hanging around in the 21st century. So Scooby-Doo created in 1969 by Hannah and Barbera. Now, if that name sounds familiar, they have been around for quite some time. They'd been around for more than a decade by the time Scooby-Doo came out. And they had, in essence, hit after hit, particularly in America, although most of this stuff was syndicated around the world. And they had a really good time of taking American sitcom situations and then animating them in a fantastical way. So you got something like the Jetsons, which very popular in America. That one didn't really make it to the UK. I think British people of my age are perhaps aware of the Jetsons, but we didn't sit down and watch it when we came back home from school. So if you're not aware, Jetsons is that classic nuclear family with the canned laughter in the background type sitcom, except it's set in the future and they've got a robot maid and, and things like that. So that's the Jetsons. Easily their best known one was the Flintstones. Which everybody has heard of, but again, in the UK, people might not be aware of, is the Flintstones was Hannah and Barbera's fantastical, i.e. Stone Age version of a very popular late 50s sitcom called The Honeymooners. Basically, Fred and Wilma and everybody else are the cartoon Stone Age versions of the key characters in The Honeymooners, which again, that particular sitcom didn't really make it to the UK, but the Flintstones absolutely did, and everybody loves a yabba do time, we'll have a gay old time, etc. from the Flintstones. Look, I, I could spend the entire podcast just going through, but just a couple of other ones. We've got Top Cat, the indisputable which again, big in America, big in the UK. This is all of its time. These tended to come out in the 60s, but they kept being re-shown in the 70s and 80s. I grew up with the Flintstones, but I think nowadays the Flintstones aren't nearly as well known, you know, to my kids, for example. But what's interesting is Scooby-Doo is an enduring brand. Scooby-Doo, literally, the first series was called Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? But then it got turned into lots of different spin-off shows. And to this day, they're still animating them. Scooby-Doo has been made into multiple movie releases. So... Kids today know who Scooby-Doo are, Flintstones a little less so. But Top Cat was based on another sitcom from America in the 1950s called the Sergeant Bilko. Well, actually, it's called the Phil Silvers Show, but most people know it as Sergeant Bilko, where Phil Silvers played this kind of hustling sergeant at this base camp. I loved that as a kid. I Actually, at university, I had a poster of Sergeant Bilko sort of rubbing his hands together with glee on my wall. I was kind of proud of that. I also had the Blues Brothers. And another point, I had Robocop. Part man, part machine, all cop. So, yeah, those are my student posters. Cause I, oh, and of course, of course, because it came out while I was at university, I did have a Reservoir Dogs poster too. That kind of ages me a little bit. What was on your wall tells you what decade you were at university. So Top Cat was a cat version of the Phil Silver show. I just sort of said this sort of scheming, 
sergeant at a base camp and basically the colonel was always trying to catch him out and it's exactly the same thing only top cat is a cat and he lives in a trash can garbage can call it whatever you want and instead of the colonel you've got the policeman who's trying to always catch this hustling cat all right top cat what are you up to now I haven't seen you so clean since I frisked you for my law citation book. Oh, that's cute, cute, very cute, Officer Dibble, sir. And weirdly, the Halifax, which is a bank in the United Kingdom, if you don't know this, have been recently using Top Cat to sort of sell mortgages. And it's like, that's a, that's a big jump. They've also used the Flintstones, to be fair. They decided for some reason that we all aspire to be an alley cat and we all really want to have a garbage can of our own. Go figure. Strange choice. So yeah, so Top Cat was hugely popular. Then we've also got things like Yogi Bear, Wacky Races, does all this sound familiar? Captain Caveman. And also in the 1960s, they did an animated version of Laurel and Hardy. This is after both Laurel and Hardy had passed away. So just a, a, a way to bring Laurel and Hardy joy to a new generation. Well, here's another nice mess you've gotten me into. Again, I could go on and on and on. You, I probably haven't mentioned your personal fav favourite, but they just churn them out. What I would say is if you're an aficionado of animation, you're going to turn around and say it's cheap animation. I'll be polite. It uses bold block colours and reused backgrounds and scenery. It's very much quick and easy, made for TV, animated fare. And it's the same thing with Scooby-Doo. And the thing that always drives me crazy about all animation, could be Hannah and Barbera, could be absolutely anybody, always, always, because it was going to be reused again and again, the opening sequence of every single thing, be it sort of Transformers or Yogi Bear or whatever, was always the best animated bit. And then you'd watch the TV show and there's a noticeable drop in quality and it's like, okay, well, I guess I'll just have to stomach this then. Regardless, so Hannah and Barbera, as I've been pointing out with all these names that are probably putting a little nostalgia smile on your face, were doing very, very well. But by the late 1960s, there were a number of organizations that were beginning to complain about TV violence. So whereas Hannah and Barbera had started with the Rough and Ready show in 1957, that was actually the very, very first one, and Nobody really remembers that one. And I've mentioned all these sort of perhaps very kid-friendly. They'd also done a number of superhero-type animated adventures. I'm, I'm not going to go into them, just don't have time. And if you want to watch them today, this is all very mild. But the whole Kapow Splat-type thing, it was just a bit much for some parents in the 1960s. And if you like, the conversation about TV violence for kids was just the go-to thing from the 1950s till the 2000s. And funnily enough, that conversation is not happening anymore. And what it's turned into is online streaming content. Now, I don't know whether it's because I'm a parent now and I'm a bit older that I tend to think that the internet is more problematic or I don't know, because legitimately, I mean, you can find anything on YouTube, whereas it's much harder back in the day. You wouldn't find something that's rated 
are in the middle of an afternoon's kids cartoon network but you know if a kid goes onto youtube completely unaccompanied they can stumble onto pretty much anything there in terms of violence so yeah i'm gonna argue i'm not being hysterical i think the answer is you just need to have a conversation with your kids and just check up what they're downloading and, and watching but in the 1960s, uh, there was just a rise in worries about there's too many cop shows on TV where people are being shot and, and things like that. And I just find it fascinating that there was this sort of upset and groundswell, even on cartoons where there's no blood or anything like that. There was back in the 60s and then again in the 80s, these concerns about Tom and Jerry and how you drop anvils on each other's heads and they'll run around a corner and stab themselves on a pitchfork and, and things like that. And it's obviously done super cartoony with zero blood, but it, it always tended to be the lightning rod of parents being very offended by it. Nowadays, it's more because of the problematic portrayal of a black woman behind the scenes demanding Thomas get rid of the mouse. That's easy enough to cut out. However, you've got The Simpsons then riffing off this with Itchy and Scratchy. <laughs> where they really push the violence. You know, they'll have the mouse nailing the cat's tongue to a hand grenade or something like that. And then you see the kids laughing hysterically afterwards. I've been showing my kids some of the classic Simpsons recently, and they also find it funny and also get what it's parodying, sort of like this concern about cartoon violence. Why am I mentioning all this? Well, Scooby-Doo was the first response by Hannah and Barbera to say, okay, fine will calm down any kind of violence. And if you think about it for a moment, Scooby-Doo and the mystery machine and everybody else, you know, Daphne and Velma and you, you know who I'm talking about. They're, the whole point of them is they're not superheroes. There's nobody to punch. Nothing is ever life-threatening. Instead, if you like, they're taking on the purest form of Batman because he's known as the world's greatest detective. So what are these kids do they go around solving crimes and whenever the big scary thing turns up what do they do do they fight it do they whip out a sword no they run away and invariably it's a cheap series of gags usually with scooby and shaggy as they run away or they are about to eat a ridiculously large sandwich and then the zombie turns up and it's like oh quick run away all this kind of stuff and you know exactly what's happening in your head right now you've probably even got the sound effects of the, the of the legs winding up and spinning off as they run away and the music that goes with it too and it was just fun in, in other words it was just a tiny bit spooky but as a kid you always knew ultimately that even if this was a, a strange spooky ghost diver with the old brass diving bell helmets on coming out of the water that was a little bit spooky if you were six years old but after you'd watched one or two it dawned on you that they all these ghosts could be explained with special effects and it was always invariably a human being behind it on you were safe who is that this this is the end of the mystery well, well, if it isn't our old friend Bluestone the Great, an ex-magician that's wanted in six states. You weren't going to get hurt. And, of course, once you're over the age of ten, you realise the only person that they meet in an episode... Sorry, big spoiler for the entire plot structure of every episode of Scooby-Doo and all the other ones is the one person they meet is invariably the person who's behind it all. But, again, if you're five or six... 
it was like, oh, wow, it was Old Man Smithers all along, which has been spoofed multiple times by so many different comedies. They looked beneath the mask, and what was inside? Oh, janitor of the duty around the water slide. And it's just glorious. I think you need to embrace it. Again, for the age group it's aimed at, it's safe scares, it makes them think a little bit about it, the dog is funny, and it's just wonderful. So they were created by Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, the, the whole series. Series, and it was an instant hit and it sort of went on into syndication into the 1970s but they started making new episodes in the 1970s it started waning a little bit in popularity in the 1980s so what did they do they created scrappy doo the little plucky nephew of scooby-doo and literally everybody including me hated him and so Scrappy-Doo was da -da 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 -da, puppy power. Everyone found him just brash and irritating and arrogant and annoying, and he was canned. And in the modern world, no one speaks of Scrappy-Doo. He is the one that must not be named. So, yeah, they made a mistake with Scrappy. All of this is around Scooby, and it's called Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Rather than a mystery team or like teenagers learning secrets or something like that. So Scooby is the central character, bizarrely, even though he hardly says anything. You know, he doesn't talk in, in a coherent way. He says, you're shaggy, which is shaggy, and that's about it. Obviously, he laughs cheekily, too, in a way that dogs don't. But he is integral to the team, even though he is a canine. And also, he has this incredibly close bond with Shaggy, which obviously is ridiculous and exaggerated, but that's the bit of history that I want to get into now. Scooby-Doo is, of course, a dog. I've just said that. Do you know what type of dog he is? He is a very interpretive version of a Great Dane. And we'll be coming back to Great Danes in a little bit, because first of all, I have to start talking about where do dogs come from? And the answer is that dogs diverged from the wolf genus between 27 and 40,000 years ago. So wolves and dogs are cousins. They're not brothers and sisters. They've been separated for quite a considerable amount of time. If we take the earliest date, since before the last ice age. I mean, you know, it's going back a bit. So with that in mind, when we use the term man's best friend, that's probably true. By comparison, I want you to guess, when is the first sign of domestication of cats? I'm not talking about small felines, because there are lots of small cats compared to, say, lions and tigers, but actual domestic, what we now consider a domestic cat breed. And the answer is about 5,500 BC from China. That is a huge gap. Dogs came substantially earlier. And why? Well, of course, we're now in prehistoric times and nobody wrote anything down. But this is why I'm saying that they predate civilization. Because do you know what? They predate human agriculture. I talk about, from time to time on talks, Gebekli Tepe. This was a site in eastern modern-day Turkey that literally rewrote the rule book on what human beings were capable of. The oldest stone structures in the world were thought to be six, maybe seven thousand years old. Maybe, maybe you could push a tiny bit further than that. Let's call it eight, shall we? 
And then they found Gobekli Tepe, which is about 12,000 years old. This site has these beautifully carved stone great monoliths, which actually have carved animals in them. And surrounding it in a circular pattern, there are these smaller stone blocks. It really makes something like Stonehenge look rubbish. And yet Stonehenge is closer in time to you right now than it is to the building of Gobekli Tepe. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Why am I mentioning all of this? It wasn't built by dogs, that I can tell you. But this was built by a hunter-gatherer society. It was thought that basically before... The invention of agriculture, sedentary populations. What do I mean by all this? Once we've created agriculture, once we're growing crops, we can't just wander around anymore. We've got to tend to the crops, which means you get permanent settlements. You start getting tiny little villages and towns and things like that, which means we have to start building stuff. So basically, agriculture goes hand in hand with construction, is the basic theory. And yet, Thousands of years before anybody had thought to plant seeds and basically manage the plant growth in the area, we were all hunter-gatherers, so we were hunting and gathering natural products out there. They still had the resources to come together and build this thing. 
Of course, we've got no idea what it was. It's likely to be some kind of ritual place because it's certainly you couldn't live in it. It wasn't really defendable. As soon as you're running out of real reasons to build something, like even if we had no possible writings or reference point, if you went up to a castle, you could see quite clearly it's built to keep people out. So it's defensive. In this case, if there is no practical use, it's probably some kind of religious ritual use. So yeah, these people sort of came together, built this thing over X amount of time and created this thing, presumably to help them with the hunts. Maybe that's why their animals are on the stones. This is all conjecture, of course. So the hunter-gatherer era was basically from the time of the hominids. This is pre-human humans, homo sapiens, all the way through to the time of agriculture we basically either scavenged and hunted to try and stay alive. Human beings were on a knife edge at that time. I know I've mentioned it in the past before, but one of the things that could easily kill you is a pack of wolves. So if we managed to take some of those wolves, feed them a little bit, you know, look after them a little bit, they became very loyal to us and they started breeding with each other. Very, very slowly they turned into their own species and we get domesticated dogs. And so you could start with a keen sense of smell. And we've seen dogs hunt in the Middle Ages. And even today with some hunter-gatherer societies, we know that dogs can be so useful to us. They can be guard dogs as well. So not only do we have a fire, but we've also got a couple of dogs around. It's gonna stop any large predators creeping up on us. All these uses for dogs, with all due respect, cats, have never been successfully trained en masse to be useful to humankind. Bridal path permitted for public use. Meow. Meow. The Krupp Munitions Factory in the Essen. Well, can't he do that? That's what we need. Well, he can, sir, yeah, but this is the one drawback, sir. We're used to working with dogs, of course. And dogs love us and want us to do well. Cats are indifferent to us and don't care if we die. People say you're either cat person or, or dog person. Full disclosure, I'm actually allergic to cats, but I used to have a cat. That's when we discovered I was allergic to it. After a few years, as I was sort of hitting puberty, I started wheezing around the cat. It's like, aha, there's a problem there. So cats are lovely and they're great to sort of stroke and things like that. But the reality is they're pretty useless, okay? They eat your food and they wander off. There was re a recent, I love this, there's a recent psychological experiment where basically somebody behaved really badly to a dog's owner and then offered the dog food and the most dogs wouldn't accept it. They did the same thing to owners of a cat, basically physically sort of pretended to beat them up. Obviously, the new person was a threat to the owner of the cat and cats just didn't care. <laughs> And as I've told you that, you probably go, yeah, it figures. So if you are hunter-gatherers on the edge of existence, are you going to survive this winter? Things like that. Genuine concerns. I'm sorry, but just stroking a cat isn't enough resource to be wasted to just have domestic cats. But domestic dogs serve a function. They become a part of the community. So... Look, which one's nicer to stroke? Cats. Which ones land on their feet? Cats. Which ones are loyal and actually useful and helpful? Dogs, okay? So I'm not saying I'm a cat or a dog person, but those are the facts, people. You, you make your choices after that. The hunter-gatherer link, though, can be firmly shown round about 15,000 years ago. Again, this is incredibly ancient times, meaning that our relationship with dogs is closer and more 
fundamental than any civilization on planet Earth. And as soon as you start talking about civilization, that means things like writing, for example. It's just that far back. It, it is amazing. So with that in mind, I mentioned in passing that Scooby-Doo is a Great Dane. And this brings us on to the topic about breeds of dogs. There are a few breeds of dogs that are genuinely ancient. They go back quite a long way because they were useful. And Great Danes are one of them. And they're not the oldest, but Great Danes were late Middle Ages, sort of Renaissance era. They were actually a mixture between the Irish Wolfhound and an, an English Mastiff. But the, the Great Danes, which actually became popular in Germany, Deutsche Hunds is another name that they're called. Great Danes were very large. They're not the largest. I believe the Irish Wolfhound is the, the largest type of dog out there, and it's colossal. But they were hunter dogs. What did they hunt? They helped humans, usually nobles, hunt things large prey, like deer and boar. They might even help in something like a bear hunt. This all sounds quite weird to modern people, but you know, at the time, the reason why we do not have wolves and bears and boars in England is because they were hunted to extinction. Now, we can talk about how terrible and horrible that was, but also at the same time, yes, we should respect wolves, but England isn't particularly large. And if every year 10 people die in your local woods from wolf attacks, we might think that that's a bit bad. So let's have the wolves in Alaska, shall we? Let's have them in the Black Forest in Germany. Uh, maybe, maybe in the highlands of Scotland, but let's not have them in somewhere like Kent because they're just going to end up killing people. So anyway, look, Apologies to everybody who feel different to that. but So the reality is that part of it was from games, part of it was actually for genuine protection of people. I'll give you a couple of other examples. You get something like the Rottweiler, which you've all heard of. And I thought the Rottweiler was a relatively modern invention, like the Doberman. The Doberman was created with a lot of other breeds in the 19th century. Back to that in a moment. But actually, no, I got it completely wrong. Actually, the Rottweiler goes back to the era of Rome. So again, really old breed. And what they did is they were used in essence as guard dogs, guarding sort of cattle and things like that against from predators like wolves. And they were incredibly useful. And then at the end of the collapse of the Roman Empire, most of the population ended up being north of the Alps, so modern-day Germany, and they became known as Mutzigehuns, which is literally translated as butcher dogs, not because they butchered people, but because butchers. They were so, such large dogs, butchers were one of the few people who could afford to look after them. And what they would do is they would put their purse of money, their pouch of money, round the dog's neck, because you ain't going to get that. I mean, you it's the perfect safe, isn't it? But obviously, if you're a butcher, you can feed the dog meat as well. And then basically, with the rise of the railroads in the 1800s, the Merzigerhunds, largely based in Rottweiler, hence the name Rottweiler is an actual town in Germany. And they were going to die out, but then we get World War One, more need for guard dogs. We've got the Dobermans, we've got the Alsatians, and we've also got the Rottweilers. And so that kind of resurrected as a new type of use for them in the early 20th century onwards. Rottweilers actually are apparently, despite their size, quite friendly dogs. So yeah, there's another example. But yeah, I briefly touched on Dobermans there. And it's, 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 it isn't just the large attack dogs for the record, but it's almost all the breeds of dog are from the 1800s. So they're about 200 years old. 
And it comes from the whole livestock breeding as well, where human beings realise the idea of genetics only appeared in the 20th century. But people realise that if you've got this particularly strong bull, big meaty bull, and you've got a big meaty cow, well, if they have kids, they might be meaty too, and we can use them for meat. Stop using the word meaty, gem. So, yes, yeah, so we started doing it with livestock and livestock breeding. Here's a question for you. So I've talked about agriculture, and this is the thing. A farm is completely unnatural. Chickens do not naturally roam around in farmyards in Kent, but we're very used to them doing that, and they've been doing it for, let's say, a thousand years. However, chickens had to come from somewhere originally. So my fun question for you is, where on earth do chickens come from? Where is the natural habitat of a chicken? They can't really fly. Why weren't they all just eaten? It's really weird, but the answer is the jungles of India. So yeah, your local bantam hen, of course, what's happened with chickens, like cows, like horses, like dogs, like cats, is human beings have bred them a certain way. So that we now come to the 21st century with dogs breed, something like the bulldog, they are all horrifically inbred. And so basically no animal species needs brothers and sisters breeding with each other's or close cousins. It leads to genetic disorders and something like a purebred, and I'm using that with inverted commas, of something like a, a bulldog and many other breeds are so horribly inbred they don't live nearly as long as, as a dog which has got a mongrel with multiple different breeds in it because it's genetically healthier at that point. So you may think that you have the creme de la creme of your particular breed of dog, but the whole breed is completely irrelevant and made up anyway. I mean, just look at something like a chihuahua. You know, it's tiny and it's sort of jittery. And, and compare that to a wolf, which is the basic size and layout of a dog. It's being bred and bred and bred, so it's incredibly tiny and small. Some of these dogs have got like really flat faces. Same with some of the cats as well. They can get infections in them. This is actually a form of animal cruelty. I'm sorry, I'm just putting it out there. And I'm not a vegetarian or vegan or anything like that, but just let the animals breed. You know, it'd be fixed in one generation if they start breeding beyond their areas. But because human beings have decided that a bulldog is a particular type of shape and look of dog, we're forcing these animals to basically breed within their own family and they get other things like liver failure. I believe that's a big problem with the you know, purebred bulldogs. Not good, not nice. Please stop it. OK, but good news is Great Danes are actually predating all these shenanigans. But again, some people want to keep them pure. So they start sort of breeding them with each other. But I just want to bring you on to another use for animals. And I said I'd mention this earlier on. I want to talk about the Dickin Medal, which was created in 1943. It's a British medal given to animals for, in their words, for gallantry. So it's exactly the same concept for animals as it was for the Victoria Cross in Britain, the Medal of Honor in America. Other countries have their own version. Now, of course, the weird thing here is that most of these animals have no idea what's going on or or do they? That's the thing. Because you got that predates 1943, but you had Sergeant Stubby, which was a, a dog from America in World War One, and is one of the rare examples of a dog that actually got promoted because of its actions during the war. So Sergeant Stubby, 
He was a lovely little dog. You can find pictures of him. He actually was given a little coat with the sergeant stripes on it and various other medals pinned to the coat. Uh, not his coat, that would be cruel. And basically, he captured, he helped capture Germans. He sort of sniffed out gas. He was just a Swiss army knife of usefulness in World War One. And surprisingly, because nowadays, when dogs are being used in combat situations, because they're trained to kill, basically, virtually all of them are destroyed before they're brought back. There are a number of really sad stories during the Vietnam War, where the men who looked after the dogs just sort of loved the dogs so much they knew that as soon as they went back home the dog would be killed so they decided to continue doing extra tours of duty because they wanted to keep the dog alive a beautiful beautiful story there in a horrible horrible war and yes yeah, so sergeant stubby was allowed to go back to america he lived till 1922 then he died and then he was stuffed in honor and you can see him now in the smithsonian museum he created huge amounts of crowds around him during world war one lovely story i love that but back to the dickin medal if you look at the list of the recipients of the medal, what's interesting is, well, I'm going to say it's, it's three main types of animal, types of animal, no lizards, for example. But what type of animal is going to be used in war, particularly in World War II? There's a clue. And the answers are pigeons, dogs and a few horses. On the entire list, there is only one cat for bravery under fire. And it was a ship's cat. So, yeah, basically, ship sunk, cats now swimming around in the middle of fire and shooting and things like that, and managed to get, get on board a lifeboat. So, well done, that cat. But the vast majority of dogs, and indeed, to this day, dogs are being rewarded the Dickin Medal, and their service is incredibly great. What a contribution to humanity. They don't really know what's going on. Again, we can start talking about animal cruelty here if you really want to. But things like carrier pigeons, what I found fascinating is some of the carrier pigeons were so effective in World War One and World War Two that the Germans had especially trained, well, they didn't have to train that hard, but they basically had falcons to take down the pigeons because falcons are going to do that anyway. Which brings us back to Hannah and Barbera because there was another thing called catch the pigeon. which was a very, very stylized, I mean, literally, rather than just falcon versus pigeon, there were airplanes versus the pigeon in that one. So Hannah and Barbera have done this remarkable connection between the uses of animals in, in war and civilization, and also with just sort of like fun kids cartoons as well. I, that's taken us full circle. I really hope you've enjoyed it. Something really weird and different today. I didn't nearly said wacky, but that's going to break us back to wacky races. Hope you like this one. Last fact to throw out to you, and that is I keep saying dog, and yet I was also doing it in German as Mürzegehund. Nobody knows why, but in the English language, the word dog only came in and flipped out hound round about the Elizabethan era, the sort of Tudor era sort of the time of William Shakespeare. We don't know if Shakespeare had anything to do with it. But basically in 1400, you would talk about your hound. But by 1600, you'd talk about your dog. So hound, we all know. There's the hound of the Baskervilles. We still use the word hound, but it's a bit old. But we all know what we know about the word dog. So there we go. All of this canine goodness in one episode. Thank you very much. Another episode coming out soon. Yes, might have gotten away with it too. If it wasn't for these 
blasted kids and their dogs. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.